0: This morning's text is taken from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. And the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. These verses teach us, in fact the whole Bible teaches us, that for everybody in this room this morning, there are two possible futures One is to inherit the world, and the other is to inherit wrath. You see the first in verse 13. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants is that he would be heir of the world. And we know from verses 11 and 12 that the descendants are those who have the faith of Abraham, not just Jewish people... But any Gentile who, apart from circumcision, has been justified by faith will inherit the world. And the other alternative future in front of you is to inherit wrath. Verse 15. The law brings wrath. If you live under the law if it has not been written on your heart, you're just under it, like a weight, telling you what you don't like to do, you will inherit wrath and not the world. Now I know that in response to that, there are skeptical answers. One One group will say, I don't believe that. I don't think there's either of those futures. I think you die, you decompose in the grave, you become unconscious forever, and that's it your history. No heaven, no hell, no inheriting the world, and no inheriting wrath. I just don't agree. Another response would be, I don't agree with that. I don't think there is such a thing as wrath forever. I think God is a loving God and will save everybody. And I think you can get to Him any way you try. And eventually His mercy will triumph and He will gather everybody out of wrath and hell and into heaven. And there will be no such thing as wrath anymore. So I don't agree with that. that a future of inheriting the world or inheriting wrath are the two options in front of everybody today. I think God is a God of mercy and he will bring everybody to the inheritance of the world. The meek shall inherit the earth and everybody will become meek someday. You know, if every unbeliever in this room believe one of those two alternatives, I would leap for joy. Because at least then, eternity has registered in your mind. And you've thought a minute about it and concluded, no heaven, no hell, just worms. Or you've concluded, no hell, just heaven. And you've thought about it a minute and you've come to terms With eternity. This vast, huge reality out there, just an eye blink away from where we are right now. But you know what? That's not where most unbelievers are. The more common response to my saying... Everybody in this room faces two futures this morning. The more common response would be to say, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. You know what I think, Pastor John? I think I'm going to go to the state fair tomorrow and eat cheese curds. That's what I think. That's the people that frighten me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want you to come in this message. And I ask you to come. I plead with you to come. I beg of you to come. Because I can't awaken anybody from the slumber of obliviousness to eternal things. I can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. So I plead with you, Father, send your Spirit into this room right now and stun us broad awake to the fact that eternity compares to this life like the rocky mountains compare to the ripples on an orange peel. Lord, there are so many who are whistling in the wind on the precipice of destruction. And their parents weep, and their brothers weep, and their friends weep. Great God in heaven... Rescue them, I pray. Help me, Father, with this word. It's so important. Give me your enabling power to say it. And give hearts to hear it and believe it. Show yourself as real in this room. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things. Actually, I'll tip you off. It's just two things. I have two points. I had three, but when I got to number three, it was so good, I decided to devote all of next week to it. (laughs) So I'll tell you what the three are. Number one, I'm going to put them in the form of questions. How and why is the law not helpful, in fact, hurtful, in providing a foundation on which you can stand to inherit the world. Why is the law of God, holy, just, and good, not helpful? That's question one. Question two is, if we inherit the world through the righteousness of faith and not the performances of the law, verse 13, How is it then that so much of the Bible makes the inheritance depend, in some sense, upon our behavior? Which it does. And that's enough to fill up a few weeks, but I will get that into this morning's message. And the third point for next week is, what does it mean to inherit the world? Why should I want it? How do I get it? What does it mean? Let's take them one at a time. Number one. Why is the law of God perfect, holy, just, and good? Not a help in securing for us a foundation... A basis on which we can stand to inherit the world. Why isn't the law helpful? So let's go to the key verses here, 14 and 15. we We've got to work our way backward in this text. 14 and 15. For if those who are of the law are heirs, that is, heirs of the world that he's just referred to. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is void. And the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there's no law, there's no violation. Now, let's notice a few things about the law here before we explain why it's of no help in getting a foundation on which we can stand to inherit the world. What is it? What's the law? One use of the law that it is not possible to read in here is the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch. That's often called the law, the the law. It's not what Paul means, and you know it's not what he means, because he contrasts it with the promise given in Genesis 15.6. You will nullify the promise if you live by the law. Well, the promise is in the law. The law in the sense of Torah or Pentateuch. So he has a limited view of law in mind, which stands over against what was spoken in Genesis fifteen six, where Abraham was justified by faith. So what would the law then be? Well... Probably, exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3.17. It's the Mosaic Law, which came 400 years later. Let me read you that verse. Here's Galatians 3.17. The law, which came 430 years later, that is, later than the promise made to Abraham does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So here you can you can think. He's thinking historically here. He's got, he's got Abraham. He's got a promise given. He's got justification, accredited divine righteousness to Abraham. 430 years later comes what? The Mosaic Law. Sinai hundreds of stipulations. I don't think that's an adequate definition of the law for this context either. The reason I don't is because in that law there are promises. In that law there are provisions for forgiveness of sin. Or to put it so that you can see the real issue... In the law, called the Mosaic Law, there are provisions for the forgiveness of law-breaking. And the law that's broken is different from the law that makes the provision for the forgiveness for law-breaking. So in Paul's mind, when he says those who are of the law are going to nullify the promise... He has a very narrow understanding of the law here. And I would say the best paraphrase of it is Ephesians 2.15 where he says, The law of commandments. In fact, probably the word commandment would be the best substitution here. In fact, that is indeed what he does in chapter 7. We'll go over there and see it. In a few minutes, we'll see that he is saying law of commandments. It is, it is do this kind of thing. Now, the question is, why does that bring wrath and not help provide a foundation for inheriting the world? Look at verse 15a. It says, the law brings about... Wrath? Why? Because he has just spent chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 persuading us that we are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners. Nobody brings to the law a submissive, obedient heart. We are rebels to the core. We don't love God by nature. We don't have the law written on our hearts by nature. It's on stone, and when it hits us, we don't like it. We're all lawbreakers, and therefore the law brings about wrath. Because if you hit the law as a lawbreaker, you will be punished. And we're all lawbreakers, and that's the only way we hit the law, apart from His grace. And then verse 15, the second half of the verse makes it even more plain what he's up to in the law and why it's of no help in providing a foundation for our inheritance. He says, but where the law is, I'm sorry, but where there is no law, there's no violation. What does that mean? No transgression, no violation. It doesn't mean there was no sin before the law. Paul's very clear. There's been sin since Adam. What he means is, this sin often lies latent or kind of dormant. And then along comes a law with specific requirements and prohibitions which suddenly cause sin to explode with transgression and violation. In other words, the law makes the sin that's inside... Visible as it transgresses a specific commandment and it stirs up more sin. That's the function of the law. Let me read you three verses to that effect. I'll read the first two. I'll have you look at the third one with me because I promised you I'd take you to Romans 7 and see this. The first is Romans 3.20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When the law arrives, sin that we may not have been aware of and is just kind of lying there doing its ugly thing, suddenly the law hits us and we say, yeah, that's who I am. Or we say, yes, that's who I am. Or we kick against the law and show that's who we are. Or Romans 5.20, the law came in so that transgression or violation would increase... Not only does the latent sin get exposed for what it is, as soon as you tell somebody what they shouldn't do, they want to do it more than they wanted to do before you told them they shouldn't do it. I have many years of parenting to prove this. And I stand in front of the mirror of the Bible often enough to know my own heart. The law not only exposes my sin, it awakens my rebellion. Now, turn with me to Romans 7, verse 12, to see the third instance of this function of the law. And here, we get so much light from this passage. So much light. Oh, that we could read books backward at the same time that we're reading them forward. It's such a shame that in our finiteness we must read things sequentially. Oh, how much misunderstanding we would save ourselves if we knew the end of the story as we read the first chapter. But we will get it if you stay around long enough to see all the chapters and every one sheds light back on the other and we get richer and richer in our understanding of what we had Partly So, Romans 7, 12 to 13. So then, the law is holy and the commandment. Now, notice the insertion of the word commandment here in substitution for the word law or the specification of the word law. That's the issue here. It's not those aspects of the law that are making promises to us or that are providing forgiveness for us that's at issue here. It's these commandments. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. And so on. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, good. Therefore, he asks, did that which is good, namely these commandments, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be. Here's the first function of the law of commandments. Be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become, here's the here is the second function, utterly sinful. So you see, two effects of the law of commandments. When, when I am a kind of latent, quiet, peaceful, happy-go-lucky, a law-abiding sinner, not thinking about or even aware of the commandments, and they come to me and they get delivered to me in a book or in a tract or from a preacher on the radio or a preacher in this room right now or reading the Bible. Exposure of my condition and intensification of my condition. I am shown to be a sinner and my sin becomes exceedingly sinful in the kind of kicking against the commandment that I am prone to do. Now, there's my answer to the question. Why does Paul say that those who are in the law, those who are making the law and the commandments of the law, the means by which they are building a foundation on which to stand to get their inheritance, will fail and get only wrath? Why? Answer... Far from being a foundation for us to stand on, it is an exposure of our utter unworthiness and the intensification of that unworthiness. And so it cannot function to provide that kind of foundation. So flee from building for yourself performances of law on which to stand to claim your inheritance of the world someday. It'll never, ever work. And the gospel is, it doesn't have to work. There's another way. There is another way. Which brings me now to question number two. The last question. How is it That verse 13 can say, let's read it. The promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that's those of you who have faith. The promise of Abraham or to his descendants that he would be an heir of the world was not through the law, but, here's the alternative, through the righteousness of faith. How is it that Paul can teach that the righteousness of God credited to my account through faith alone is the foundation on which I stand to lay claim to my inheritance? How can he teach that when so much of the Bible says the claiming of that inheritance depends in some sense on my behavior? Now let's explain this question and then get the biblical answer in front of us. It's not a new answer. We saw it about three weeks ago. And so it it won't land on you with anything new. It will be a restatement of what we've seen. But you need to see it answering this question to take it deeper into your soul. Verse 13 again says that through the righteousness of faith... Abraham and his descendants will get the promise of the world. Now, we know what that is. I'm not reading in here by saying this is an imputed righteousness of God awarded to faith. I'm not reading that in. I'm basing it on verse 9 and verse 11. Verse 9 says, faith was credited to Abraham. This is a righteousness that is not Abraham's. You hear that? It is not Abraham's righteousness. It is God's credited to him for faith. Or more clearly in verse 11 where he says, He got this before he was circumcised so that he might be the father of everybody who hasn't been circumcised. Last phrase in verse 11. That righteousness might be credited to them. So think with me very clearly now. When it says in verse 13, righteousness of faith, in this context it means there is a righteousness of God. We know now on this side of the cross, it's the righteousness of God displayed in Jesus Christ's perfect obedience and suffering on the cross. This righteousness is his, not mine. I haven't a righteousness that will pass muster at the judgment. I can't lay claim to any inheritance of the world. I'm a sinner. So how am I going to get my inheritance? Answer, the righteousness of God is credited to my account. Financial people can handle that, little metaphor. It is credited to my account. Or the theological word is, it is imputed to me, it is made over. God treats me as though His righteousness is my righteousness. And the channel of that crediting, the channel of that imputing, is one thing alone. Tell it to me. and Say it loud. It is? Good. Faith alone is the channel through which the imputed righteousness of God in Christ becomes mine, on which I stand and now lay claim in his name to the inheritance. That's the teaching of verse 13. My question is, how can he teach that when so many parts of the Bible teach that the inheritance, in some sense, depends upon my behavior? Now if you say, oh, where does it teach that? Let's do this. Let's let Abraham... And the covenant that God made with Abraham be the test case of this issue. So, go with me now back to Genesis 22. I want you to, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. You need to see this on your own, lest you think I'm creating an artificial problem here. It is not just some other place of the Bible besides Abraham and the covenant made with Abraham where this problem arises. The covenant made with Abraham is a covenant whereby if he trusts God, he gets the righteousness of God. That's what we have been saying for weeks. But there's more to it than that. All right, what happens in chapter 22 of Genesis? Answer, Abraham offers up his son almost to death because God intervenes and substitutes a ram for him. Thus foreshadowing the wonderful substitutionary work of Jesus to rescue us, and then having been obedient from faith, God says this, verse sixteen. Are you with me? Twenty two sixteen. By myself I have sworn. Declares the Lord, here's the phrase, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, and now he gives the promise exactly the same way he gave it in chapter 15 which was received by faith alone and for which God's righteousness was credited to him. And here he makes it dependent upon obedience. Because you have done this thing, because you have done this thing, because you have done this thing... Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Here it is again. Because you have obeyed my voice. All right, Now here's the question. I'll state it again. How is it that Romans 4.13 can say that the promise of inheriting the world will be freely given to Abraham and his seed who like him trust on the basis of an imputed righteousness of God through faith alone and yet say Because you have offered your son, you will inherit. The answer is really not hard. And it is very important. If you get the answer right, it will be the difference between leading a life of slavery or a life of freedom. It will make the difference how you fight the Christian walk, fight the fight. Here's the answer. It's the same answer that we saw in bringing James 2 together with Romans 4. Namely, God has ordained that the faith which justifies is of such a nature that it changes your life. And the change in your life called obedience is the evidence... The authentication and the fruit of the faith which alone stands on the righteousness, which alone provides the foundation for the inheritance. Did you ever wonder why everywhere Christianity has spread, schools have sprung up? It's because right now in this room, intense mental energy is being expended. Some in vain, and you are phasing out on me. Others are doing your best to understand that long, complicated sentence that I just used, which is no longer and no more complicated than many sentences in this great book called Romans. The reason, this is a parenthesis, by the way, because I'm, I'm just so overwhelmed by the wonder of this book and that God would ordain that the glories of the gospel be revealed through a book that requires such incredible mental effort to understand. What's the meaning of that? Schools! Books! Teaching little Talitha at age three. This is an A. Say A. A. That's an A. Big A. This is a little A. Say A. 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 She will read before she's five or I'll die in the process. (laughs) Why? Because of the Bible. That's why there is no other reason in all the universe to learn to read superior to be able to construe the argument of the book of Romans. And therefore, I close my parenthesis here pleading for your patience. I'll say it again now. Why is it not a contradiction to teach in Romans 4.13 that the foundation of our inheritance of the world is a righteousness of faith alone? A righteousness of faith alone. And on the other hand, to say to Abraham, because you have obeyed in offering your son, you will inherit the world. Why is that not a contradiction? It's not a contradiction because the obedience is not the foundation. It is the evidence that you're standing on the foundation. Let me say it another way. It is not a contradiction because obedience is the fruit and faith is the tree rooted in the revelation of God's righteousness. The, the fruit does not make the tree good. The tree makes the fruit good. The fruit is not the foundation. The tree rooted in righteousness of God is the foundation. Now, you may say, well, boy, that's complicated. What difference does it make? Here's the difference. When you go out of here this afternoon, you know what you're going to do? Before you go to bed tonight, you are going to sin. No exceptions in this room. Now, when that happens, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? How are you going to fight? What is your orientation to that going to be? And if you are a justified sinner, not standing on the foundation of performances of the law to get your inheritance, you'll fight one way. And if you are a person who can only see the law as a list of commandments, and i got to perform it in order to have a foundation on which to stand to get my inheritance, you'll fight a totally different way. You're both going to sin. One will bring you to wrath. The other will bring you to the inheritance of the world. And they are miles apart. Infinitely apart. And here's, I'll just describe this one. When you sin this afternoon as a justified Newborn, spirit indwelt, law written on your heart, new covenant, sinner. You will feel bad about it. And you'll say to God, I'm sorry. And I repent, forgive me. And you will claim again, afresh, the glorious provision of the cross. You will come to Him, renouncing it, hating it. And, secondly, you will reach out to Jesus for new portions of hope in future grace. That the Holy Spirit will be there to enable you to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit better tomorrow than you have today. You will struggle to increase your faith which is the channel through which that Holy Spirit and that grace flows, rather than struggling externally to shape up your behavior. The Pharisees made the outside of the cup clean, and inside they were rapaciousness and dead men's bones. What a difference between cleaning the cup. We read the, we read in devotions this morning, just to show you how you have to adjust things for three-year-olds. We read about hypocrisy and. and Stalitha, who does not know how to read yet, said, what's hypocrisy? And I said, it's playing like you're something on the outside that you're not on the inside, which was of no help to her whatsoever. <laughs> because she said, I have lots of toys. <laughs> which Noel interpreted to me, playing toys, which I didn't get it. So we've got a lot of work to do with our kids. But you all know what hypocrisy is. I'll bet some of the kids here know what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is trying to look like you are on the outside what you are expending no internal energy to become on the inside. And the only way to get that thing fixed on the inside is faith. Everything else is external. Everything else is performances. Everything else is law. And everything else is wrath in the end. And so the way you fight will be a fight of faith. You will fight for faith. You will see some, you will see some nasty word come out of your mouth towards your wife or your husband. You say, where did that come from? And you will go to your room and your main thought will not be, I gotta get this mouth cleaned up. The main thought will be, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, what's wrong with my heart? What's wrong with my heart? Am I not trusting you? Don't I love you? Don't I delight in you? Isn't your law written there? And there you will fight. There you will fight. You will do anything to trust the Lord. Whatever it takes to become a new person on the inside, resting, trusting like a little child, so that the overflow of your mouth is sweet out of the same spring, brackish and clear water ought not to come, James says. Well, those are my two points. Next week is point three. What does it mean to inherit the world? The reason I put this off is not only because I knew there wasn't any time for it. I'm already way over. But because next Sunday is a great ministries fair. And a great dreaming about the fall. And what, what it means to do, do, do as a Christian. I love being a doer as a Christian. I think... Trees are made to bear fruit, don't you? Trees are made to be fruitless. Faith is given in order that we might be transformed by it. And when we are, we feel so right and so clean and so good because the Holy Spirit is performing in us what He was designed to perform when we received Him by faith. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, I end where I began. There are now, this afternoon, in front of us, two futures. The inheritance of the world and the inheritance of wrath. And I praise you now. I exult in you and I delight in you. And we together as saints reach out and corporately embrace the gospel promise. That the inheritance of the world comes to Abraham and his seed, not through the law of commandments, but through and based upon the righteousness of God, imputed to us freely through faith alone. Would you now grant that everyone in this room would believe would trust you. And would you grant that faith to be not a dead faith, and not a devil faith, and not a useless faith, but a living faith that works itself out through love so that the evidences and the authentications of obedience would abound in this church. And now the Lord bless you, keep you,